Welcome to The Theatre, the podcast of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. The Theatre is an ongoing conversation on surgery and surgical training, featuring practitioners from around the world in discussions ranging from learning and professional development to advances in technology and technique. This is the second episode of our four-part series on the theme of culture change. The series was created in collaboration with the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and is presented by Ray Liang, General and Breast Surgeon in Gold Coast, Australia, and Simon Fleming, Orthopedic Trainee in London. In episode one, we considered the question, why do we need culture change in surgery? And following from that discussion, we now ask, how is it achieved? Following this podcast, the listeners should be able to evaluate ongoing national and international initiatives to attain culture change and review how these efforts might be applied to their own working cultures. Hi, I'm Ria Liang. I'm a general and breast surgeon from the Gold Coast of Australia, and I'm also the chair of the Operate with Respect Education Committee for the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. Uh, and I'm Simon Fleming. I'm a trainee orthopaedic surgeon in London. Uh, I'm the vice chair of the Academy of Medical Royal College's trainee doctor group. And in my spare time, I work towards culture change in healthcare. And so today we're going to talk about how we actually achieve culture change. Um, in Australasia, we've been doing it since 2015 with a program called Operate with Respect, which is part of an even larger program called Building Respect. Um, and so people might say, you know, oh, well, it might be a little bit easier in Australasia because the population combined of Australia and New Zealand is only 25 million people, about 7,000 surgeons. Um, you know, this would never work if it were translated to the UK setting, but I, I'm actually dying to hear uh, to to know whether it could translate, um, because I don't actually think that human beings are all that different from one side of the world to the other. Um, but I don't know. Simon, would, do you think I should just describe the Operate With Respect program? Yeah, because I guess um, I think it would be good to hear what RACs have done and how they're doing it and how they've gone about it, because there's been multiple attempts in the UK from, from multiple organisations, but certainly Operate With Respect is probably the, the best known and, and I would probably say the, the most overtly successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, because we did have a very um, extensive piece of research performed last year as our first time point for evaluation, which had very promising markers, but I'll get to that in a moment. So Operate With Respect was launched in 2015. Um, and as part of that, um, I mean, there are eight overarching aims as part of the Building Respect Plan, but the Operate with Respect section of it aims to deliver education to all the fellows, uh, international medical graduates, trainees, and applicants to training um, entering surgery. And we started off with an online module, which takes about 45 minutes um, and lays down some definitions of bullying, discrimination, and sexual harassment, um, and has some video vignettes and some self-learning exercises. In the first year of rolling that out, we had reached about 66% of our target group, um, and over the ensuing two years after that, we reached pretty well 100%. We got to 99.9%, and we'll never get that last little bit because actually those are people who are onboarding. So when someone becomes a fellow of the college, they have six months to complete the module. It is mandatory. Um, And then 
About a year after we started that, we also developed a face-to-face course, which is simulation-based. So we use role plays to get people to re- to learn how to speak up when they see um, or have reported to them episodes of disrespectful behavior. And the target group for this was all the people with a leadership position. So the executive, um, the council, board chairs, um, major committee members, um, directors of skills courses, for example. That group is roughly six to 700 surgeons. So you can see out of a total body of 7,000 surgeons, that would be about 10%. And the idea with that was to create a critical mass of people who had the advanced skills to speak up when they saw it or do something when they heard about it. That We, we were about 67% complete on that when coronavirus hit. And so unfortunately, that bit of training is on hold, although we plan in Australia to restart that with, with universal masking. Um, to hopefully get through the rest of the target group. In conjunction with all of that, we've had a very active um, publicity campaign. So there have been lots of policy documents, um, lots of social media, um, a lovely little logo that has been used on everything, a hashtag, hashtag operate with respect, and campaigns with um, all the major events that relate to respect, such as um, International Women's Day and Harmony Day and, um, you know, Pride events and such like. And in in 2019, we also launched an app, a speak up app that you can have on your phone to remind you how to go about speaking up. And we were just starting to work on the, a trainee course um, to teach trainees what to do when they experience bullying. Because of course, we know with the hierarchy inversion, the options available to them is slightly different to the options available to a consultant surgeon. Unfortunately, like I said, COVID has scuttled things for a little bit this year, but we hope to get back onto that shortly. Um, And so then just getting onto the evaluation, we had a a large quantitative and qualitative evaluation last year where we resurveyed the entire fellowship uh, international medical graduate and trainee group. And we also did lots of qualitative um, interviews of key members. And we also did a textual analysis of everything that had been produced in relation to operate with respect to all the policies, um, all the um, publicity, all the social media. And it was amazing. The support for Operate With Respect within the college exceeds 90% across all the groups. So more than 90% of fellows and international medical graduates and trainees support this. And the qualitative data showed that things actually are changing on the ground. So we had trainees saying, you know, 2014 before the program, I put on a complaint about bullying, nothing happened. In 2019, I had another episode, I put on another complaint and it was acted on very swiftly. These things are changing. And that really warms the cockles of my heart. Because as we said, you know, culture eats policy for breakfast. You know, you can set policies as much as you like. But unless you can actually change culture, which is the way we do things around here, then you're not really winning. Back to you, Simon. Um, I mean, I, I, I know the Operate With Respect campaign really well, and I, I absolutely love it. I, I, from From a UK point of view, there's obviously... We, we have a lot more colleges uh, and uh, a, a, a huge, huge workforce. Um, and so there are actually lots of initiatives. So there's a uh, national anti-bullying alliance. There's multiple colleges have started their own uh, campaigns, some of which have had greater uh, impacts than others. One of the most fascinating things we've, we've done in the UK, and you, you see it a lot, is... Um, there's a fear of hierarchy, there's a fear of reprisal, there's a fear of sticking your head above the parapet, as you might imagine. 
Uh, and so one of the things that has, has come to be since we started the anti-bullying work mm-hmm. in 2015 is something called Freedom to Speak Up Guardians. Uh, every hospital now has a Freedom to Speak Up Guardian, which is a, a person or people who are arm's length. They are outside of kind of nearly everyone's chain of command, pretty much. And it's someone you can go to to talk to about um, issues around undermining bullying, discrimination, that mean you don't necessarily have to go face to face with uh, someone where there's a real power dynamic there, you know, where you don't have to, it allows you to avoid that kind of difficult Vanderbilt cup of coffee conversation, it allows you to just raise concerns and step away. And interestingly, when we when we speak to the the Freedom to Speak Up Guardians, they do a, a yearly report and they reckon that about half of all things reported to them include an element of either bullying or harassment. And a bit like you, to be fair, we, we recognize that um, uh, you're never going to get rid of these behaviors because these behaviors are kind of intrinsic to human nature, I think. I think what we're starting to see, certainly in the UK, and it's something you know I'm pretty proud of, is we're recognizing these behaviors as unhealthy and unhelpful. And you're starting to see, like, like you said, both a higher rate of reporting, which of course people find very difficult because the numbers go up, right, rather than down. Um, yeah. But also mm-hmm. a feeling from people that these conversations, whether they are informal or formal, are starting to have more of an impact that these behaviors are now being seen as the exception rather than the rule and a lot of the a lot of the work that's gone on has gone into um denormalizing these behaviors getting rid of those excuses so you know well i i what that means i can't give a trainee feedback no well of course you can but there's a difference between feedback and tearing someone a new one in a corridor Mm. there's you know, the, the classic one of uh, my favorite, one of my favorite excuses for these behaviors is, well, I'm really, I'm really stressed. Um, and so when I, you know, when we do these workshops and things, I always draw a graph of um, behaviors to stress. And I ask people to plot where on the graph it's okay to be a racist. <laughs> and there's kind of normally an awkward silence. And I go, no, no, okay, well, well, when can I hate women how stressed am i do i do i need to be before that behavior is acceptable yeah you know uh if i'm really stressed where when can i make people cry um and and once you highlight these things as just being you know as 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 overtly bad as they as they clearly are you can then have the conversations about the much more nuanced conversations about how to change things um and and i kind of wonder i was going to I was going to ask you how you overcome this because it's something certainly I've encountered, we've encountered when we do this work. One of the things I, I learned very early on is that asking people to change often includes asking people to, to lose something. Um, asking asking mm-hmm. someone to flatten the hierarchy might mean asking them to give up power or prestige or privilege or a title they've worked hard for. And and I'm very aware that a lot of the stuff I do and am able to do comes from a place of privilege, right? I can ask people to to get rid of titles, but I'm a straight white man and I've never been mistaken for anything but a doctor. I've never been mistaken for a nurse or cleaning yeah. staff or a medical student. So it's not surprising then that when I go, yeah, sure, let's all just get rid of our titles or let's all just be nicer. I say that 
having not experienced some of those things. So how do you how do you overcome people who their hearts are undeniably in the right place, but you're asking them to give something up. You're asking them to change, in, in some cases, things they hold very dear, like their core values around, you know, maybe respect is not speaking up to your boss, even if they're about to make a mistake or what have you. How, do you, how have you navigated that kind of really subtle thing between like privilege and, and change actually meaning that someone else has to lose something. Yeah. And and that's a very good point, you know. It it actually gets back to their identity. You know, the, the this feeling that, you know, we we were all house officers on the trenches and we did these terrible hours and we worked hard together and these, you know, we were all bullied is actually part of people's identity. You know, there's there's whole cohorts of people who are sort of bound together from fighting in the trenches, a little bit like what you see amongst military troops in the war who have been through significant battles. And so it is hard to say to them, now, look, we don't do things like that anymore. Um, You know, we would like everyone to behave respectfully and not bully. It's almost like saying to them, the way that you were trained is no longer valid. You know, and and by extension, you, your identity as a surgeon is no longer valid. And it's really about turning them around and not kind of going, well, you have to give something up or lose something, but really about focusing on, well, this is what we have to gain. You know, this is what we have to gain for you and for your patients and for the whole profession of surgery. Um, and we have, you know, um, we've, we have not by design, actually, just by accident, you know, when people find alternative ways to deal with their stress. So we'll say, look, just because you're stressed, you are not allowed to raise your voice or be racist or sexist. And they'll say, but what do I do when I'm stressed? And some of them have found alternative things. Um, you might scoff, um, you know, these things are tinged with various connotations, but people have found things like mindfulness meditation or that they actually just need to cut down on their work hours and have a bit more work-life balance or that they need to reinvigorate a, a much-loved but, you know, much-loved hobby that they had to give up for surgery, you know, that sort of thing. And so we're actually basically saying to them, we would like you to be a better human. You know, we would just like you to enjoy your life a bit more and not be terribly stressed all the time to the point where you behave so badly. Um, So that's on a personal level. As far as patient safety goes, of course, we touched on um, earlier the effects on patient safety of both experiencing and witnessing poor behaviours. And then the benefits to surgery as a whole, you know, the fact that diversity will improve. Um, and the sorts of people that you work with will improve. You know, the, the, the essence of it is that if we keep selecting or encouraging people who can put up with these very disrespectful behaviours, then we're often going to end up with colleagues that are actually slightly unpleasant to work with. Whereas if we encourage people who are reflective and know when they need to take a step back and can manage their stress in better ways, then actually our whole working lives will improve. You know, like the whole profession of surgery will be slightly better adjusted um, and more pleasant to work with. And I think that will solve some of the very toxic cultures that have become established and entrenched in units. Um, And it's, I mean, that all really resonates. Um, Kind of some of the metaphors I I sometimes use are around things like, you know, parenting styles and schooling styles. You know, we we used to hit kids a lot. Mm. (laughs) You know, if you didn't know your timetable, if you hadn't done your homework, your teacher was legitimately allowed to make you stand at the front of the room and hit you with a stick. Mm. And that was considered 
good schooling, right? Good parenting. Mm-hmm. And it's and and it worked, right? My pet my parents went through that style of schooling and they are smart, hardworking, high achieving people. And and you're right, it it shouldn't be a pejorative thing. It shouldn't be like, you know, you were you were abused and you were trained poorly. It's um we know we know better now. And one of the nicest mm-hmm. metaphors for that, I say nice, <laughs> is um is drink driving, right? Thirty uh, something years ago in the UK, it was perfectly normal to have one for the road and drive home a little bit drunk. It wasn't a bad thing at all. And you know, you talk about uh, selecting people who are more reflective and selecting and recognizing that there are traits that many see as kind of airy fairy, but actually are good for patients and good for the workforce. And that's part of it is is changing drink driving in the UK certainly. And I know there's similar issues in Australia is, is takes time. It takes, it takes a real age to change culture because you're changing the way people think and feel and believe things so that now if, if after this podcast, you are exhausted from the sound of my voice and feel like you need to have a couple of bottles of wine. If you then reach for your car keys, it is perfectly acceptable for a complete stranger to go, um, do you want me to get you an Uber or do you want to maybe rethink that? No one has to mention the police or losing your license. It's societally acceptable to just be like, yeah, look, you know, maybe, maybe you don't want to do that. And you don't feel like someone screamed at you. You go, yeah, actually you're right. I nearly made a mistake there. I was about to do something I probably shouldn't do for a number of reasons, but that's, that takes decades to kind of yeah. change that, that core value that means that we don't, look at people being more more respectful or uh changing their behaviors as as weak or as soft but instead just recognizing that in years to come we will look back on some of the way we behaved and we will feel a little a bit like (laughs) a bit like we're seeing a lot of now with people being ashamed of their country's background in in things like slavery there will be a certain amount of shame and guilt associated with like, I can't believe we used to yeah. do it that way. Yeah. And so it's getting that change. You know, I want to move from that thing. You know, right now, if someone who is working full time says, you know, I've recognized I'm a bit stressed lately and I've been behaving badly because of it, I'm going to cut down to point eight and spend a bit more time with my dog, you know, or whatever. People, you know the muttering that will go on in corners. You know, what sort of person are they? Aren't they cut out for the job? You know, what do they mean they can't put up with the stress? Should they be in surgery? You know, we need to change that around and go, isn't that an amazing thing that they are insightful enough and respectful enough of themselves and their patients that they will keep themselves safe and their trainees safe and their patients safe by knowing, recognizing their own limits and taking active steps to deal with it. You know, that's the kind of dialogue we have to get to. And in sociological research, you know, there's this kind of fancy terminology about the cultural reproduction of habitus, you know. Um, but basically what it means is that it takes two generations. So without outside influence, the culture that we inherit is the one that we pass on. And so to change it requires two generations because there's a generation, you know, think of it like, um, you know, smoking in public places. Um, you know, there's a generation who will who start out seeing that as perfectly normal and then learn that it's not normal, But and they will spend their whole lives choosing not to smoke in public places, but doing it on a conscious way. 
they have to do it consciously. But the next generation after that grows up just assuming it is normal. You know, it becomes the new normal, but it does take two generations. And so we have to be prepared for that in surgery. You know, these are not, um, you know, when we're looking at operate with respect, it's not something that you just kind of found some funding for for three years or five years. You know, we are not going to be done for decades. <laughs> so we have to be prepared to keep working at it for a while so that until we get the second generation. The, mil- the military have had that experience. They did a big culture change thing and then they kind of, you know, dusted themselves off and went back to work and just, they just saw everything went back to the the slightly toxic baseline. And what they've recognised is it's an iterative process. You can never let it drop uh, and it it takes ages but the moment the thing is as well is you can never stop doing this work because otherwise it just resorts to how it was you know if you stop telling people if you stop reminding people that you probably shouldn't get pissed and drive home sooner or later someone's going to be like well nothing will come of it so maybe i'll just have one or two you can never really let it drop the same with smoking cessation or anything thank you for listening We hope this discussion has been valuable for you in improving your capacity to evaluate how culture change might be accomplished in your working environment. Rhea and Simon will return in two weeks' time with the third edition of our four-part series, where they will discuss the levers and barriers to achieving culture change in surgery. The Royal College of Surgeons of England wishes to thank the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons for their participation in this project. For the latest information and updates from the college, please visit our website or follow us on social media. 